Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy, not a gender. All right. Six smackaroonies this week. We liked movies this week. Let's get into it. Um, I'll kick things off with the first one. Went to the theater a lot this week. Yeah. Not complaining. So the first movie was the 1962 drama mystery thriller, the Trial. It was directed by Orson Welles. This is also our first Orson Welles film that we've both ever seen. And the adaptation and dialogue was written by Pierre Cholo, Cholot, uh, and is uh, also written by Orson Welles and based off the novel by Franz Kafka. It stars the long boy extraordinaire himself, Anthony Perkins, as Joseph, Orson Welles as the advocate slash narrator. Madeline Robinson as Mrs. Grubach, uh, Jean Moreau as Marika, and Romy Schneider as Lenny. The synopsis is an unassuming office worker is arrested and stands trial, but he's never made aware of his charges. This was an experience, and it, it got kicked off in a really great way. So we saw it at Metro Cinema, and uh, they had a little preamble by and a very academic intro. And you love this kind of stuff. I do. By Dr. Alexander Carpenter from the University of Alberta, who gave a bit of an intro and preamble on Kafka. And he had a really nice uh, PowerPoint presentation. I was a big fan of the design. He had a podium. He did have a podium. Usually there's just a mic stand up there, but Homeboy requested a podium. Um, He also roasted his son real hard, which I loved a lot. (laughs) What, What did he say? Well, he, part of it was about his son, them being in the car one day and Bob Dylan coming on the radio and his son not knowing who Bob Dylan was. And they got into that started them on this like long conversation about Bob Dylan. And then somehow Franz Kafka came up and his son also didn't know who Franz Kafka was. And he said something to the effect of now I could handle him not knowing who Bob Dylan, Dylan was, but Franz Kafka devastating. Yeah. <laughs> You're not my son. And then he also said he's somewhere in this audience. Yeah. <laughs> Just roasting him while he's in the blasted room. Blasted him. It was great. So good. 
Um, what'd you think of the trial? I loved it. Yeah. Did, I loved it. Did not know what to expect going in. Yeah, it was so fun. Um, I wanted to, when I saw that Metro was playing this, I had never heard of it. Mm-hmm. I had heard of Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial. Mm. So when I saw this, I didn't actually make the immediate connection that it was an adaptation because that's a pretty generic name. Like, mm-hmm. we watched The Hunt last week. There's a million movies called The Hunt. Yeah. Right? Um, and then I, you know, when Metro's playing something, I usually look into if I'd want to see it. And then I saw Anthony Perkins was in it and I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then I saw it was based on the Kafka novel and I was like, okay. And then we had kind of already decided we were going to see it. But then um, when we see movies at Metro, for anyone who either hasn't been there or isn't from the area, their previews are all for upcoming movies at Metro. Mm-hmm. So they're not just like upcoming movies in general. They're movies that are going to come specifically to Metro. And we saw a trailer for the trial and I was like, holy shit, not only do I want to see this, this looks like something I'm going to love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have you read the trial? No, I've read The Metamorphosis and that is the only Franz Kafka thing I've read. Right. But my brother has read the trial. Um, the In the preamble by uh, Dr. Carpenter. He explains where Kafka-esque came from. And I'm glad he did because I didn't really understand that. Kafka-esque is basically the stuff that like David Lynch does. Mm-hmm. And it just reaffirmed that I am a big fan of Kafka-esque stuff. Well, th- what was wild about this was it was, you know, this is a term that we've been using since very early on in this show, but we've been using it in our own lives for years, which is the Twin Peaks effect. Mm-hmm. When you watch something that has inspired things that you love that are more contemporary and then it feels derivative or it feels like you've seen it a million times, but it was the original source yeah. or one of the original sources, this felt like the ultimate paradoxical Twin Twin Peaks effect because we cre- we created that term to talk about when we watched Twin Peaks and we felt like we had seen the things that Twin Peaks had inspired. Mm-hmm. Well, we were now watching the thing that inspired Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was just like a total like mind fuck because it never ceases to amaze me and delight me that I can watch something from decades ago and it can feel so fresh and it can feel contemporary but then I realized like this was so new then. And mm-hmm. so what we think of as contemporary now is just inspired by stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's that's how I felt about this movie. I was just like, holy shit, this is all the things I like about movies now. Mm-hmm. And it existed in 1962. Yeah. Well, and it just kind of continues the notion that we've talked about a few times. Basically, every time we watch a uh, a film from the 60s that is renowned is that we really like 1960s cinema because they were just, it seemed like they were just pushing the limits of what filmmaking was and what storytelling was in the film medium. This movie is not that renowned. Well, freaking should be. But what I can't say about it, I think it's like being reevaluated or whatever. You know how that happens. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, is I have never had any interest in watching anything Orson Welles has done. I was just like, ah, Orson Welles, you know? 
Citizen Kane. Who cares? I kind of think like, I don't know why, but I just think, you know, black and white, old timey, like, look at look at here. She <laughs> that's, that's kind of the vibe I get, even though I feel like that really predates Orson Welles. Probably. But that's what I kind of always felt about it. Yeah. And just like this um, predetermination that it would be boring. Yeah. And then I saw this and I'm like, well, Orson Welles. Maybe I can fuck with you. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, who, who knew? And that, you know, I don't know that we ever would have watched this movie if it hadn't been playing at Metro. So mm-hmm. that's um, that's really awesome. I think the other thing that made us watch it was that Anthony Perkins was in it. Yeah, I'm always since Psycho, I'm excited to dive even deeper into the Longboy Perkins filmography. He's so magnetic on screen. Mm-hmm. And Orson Welles, I, I mean, if you've listened to the show before, you know that I love a one-take shot. <laughs> and I guess that Orson Welles loves that stuff. And it's on full display here. But it lends itself so well to his actors, in, and specifically Anthony Perkins, because it just lets him sing, mm-hmm. so to speak, in all of these scenes. Like the the open the opening scene is this really long one take, and it's Anthony Perkins like waking up and getting dressed while talking to some detectives. So it's this really compelling dialogue, and it's also just like very kinetic while he's like kind of scrambling to get dressed and look for people that are uh, that live in his apartment building. It's just really compelling right out of the gate, and then that's continued throughout the rest of the film. And then as it starts kind of dabbling more in surrealism and embracing its oddities, it makes it even makes it even better. And I just I love Anthony Perkins mannerisms mm-hmm. like he's very he's very effeminate in his movements. And as I'm saying that, I feel like I am as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, my mom likes to joke that whenever I have a crush on a celebrity, that celebrity well, I mean, my whole family, my friends, too, like to joke about like, yeah, of course, you have a crush on that person. They just look like a different version of Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would say that Anthony Perkins and you have some very similar bodily movements. Yeah. Although Long. he has broad shoulders. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Like, I feel like we could each sit on one of those shoulders. Yeah. No problem. And I would. Yeah. It's a, It's just a shame... You know, we didn't really know his story until we watched Queer for Fear, mm-hmm. the um, Shutter kind of documentary thing that they did. Um, and it seems like he was interested in, particularly around the time that he did Psycho, and then this is two years after Psycho, in taking on these really interesting projects. Um, but it didn't continue. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I go to his, like, letterbox page and I'm like, okay, so what else can I watch that he's done? And there actually isn't that much that's making use of the talent that he had or is mm-hmm. all that interesting. You know, kind of like how somebody in the contemporary moment that kind of reminds me of him and what he was doing in Psycho in the trial is Robert Pattinson. With like, mm-hmm. it seems like Anthony Perkins had done a lot of really just, like, movies that would do well, romance easy like theater grab stuff Mm -hmm. and then when he chose to do psycho he was making an active choice to deviate from that right knowing that that could have an impact on his career and it seems like it did but not in the way that 
maybe was possible in the 60s because it, it I don't know that as many a as many movies were being made and b as many were like taking risks like what the trial is taking right um and then wanting to cast anthony perkins in them whereas like robert pattinson has really successfully made that shift to like i'm just gonna make weird shit (laughs) yeah and i'm gonna pick projects i want to do um and it just makes me sad because i feel like he like if anthony perkins was the age he is in the trial now he'd be making the coolest shit and picking the most interesting projects yeah and like we kind of learned about his queerness in in the queer for fear documentary and his struggle with with that identity and i feel like if he was around now that would be less of a case hopefully ideally well this is i feel really conflicted about this so when i was reading up some of the trivia about this movie and one of the things that uh, dr carpenter said in his intro which uh, was brought up a lot. And like the things I was reading was that Orson Welles obviously is well-liked successful director and he had a lot of choice for his next project and he chose this and people were like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but he, he wanted to make this movie and that he felt very strongly when this movie was finished, that it was some of his best work and his most personal work. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Orson Welles buddies. So this is really a game of telephone. So I guess how much this is true we don't know but one of his buddies henry jaglom mm. what a name maybe yaglom um has said that wells knew that anthony perkins was gay and quote used that quality in perkins to suggest another texture in joseph k a fear of exposure the whole homosexuality thing and that's a direct quote mm. <laughs> well, that's what i'm going to name my band the whole homosexuality <laughs> thing. that's good um using perkins in that way was incredible for that time this was intentional on Orson's part. He had these three gorgeous women trying to seduce this guy who was completely repressed and incapable of responding. The closetedness of Perkins' homosexuality, he thought, brought a whole wonderful subtext to the film. I remember him saying that they never talked about it, but he felt that Perkins definitely knew what he was doing. Because mm. on the one hand, I felt that in the film. Yeah. And I felt like this is a big part of the movie and I don't think it's a spoiler at all to talk about this. This film is dream logic. Yes. Beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like a man caught in a nightmare. I mean, when you look at that synopsis, a person is arrested and stands trial, but they don't know what they're charged with. Like that is mm-hmm. like the nightmares I have where like, I, I just can't get my um, course outlines printed for the first day of school. And the students are already in the room and like, and for some reason, it just won't work and it just won't work. And it just like it's that feeling. Yeah, right? just like stuck in the muck and you can't get out. And you, everywhere you turn, it's just this no, another problem and you and you don't have an answer and you're confused about what's happening. Yeah. Um, and then within that, yeah, there are several women who like very aggressively and um, directly try to have sex with him. Oh, man. Everybody's freaking horny for <laughs> Anthony Perkins. <laughs> Which in this like movie. I get because he's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful <laughs> human being. Um. But he's just like, at times he feels annoyed by it. At times he seems oblivious to it. And at times he seems angry about it. Yeah. Um, and I do think you can read into that, like, there, there's a queer analysis latent within, in that mm-hmm. that pairs with the nightmare logic to make something actually really complex and really of the time because maybe that wouldn't be as applicable today, at least in certain parts of the world. 
but also like really astounding for the time. Yeah. But what makes me feel uncomfortable about it is the like, if it's true, because of course this is a friend who's saying that Orson Welles said this to him, but if it's true that Orson Welles was doing this on purpose, but wasn't talking to Anthony Perkins about it, then it, just saying like, oh, he knew what I was doing. Yeah. And it's like, how, how fair is that? And when, you know, we know where Anthony Perkins story eventually goes, you know, as a man who died from AIDS and never publicly came out like that's yeah a really, this feels very exploitative. Yeah. To do that to him. And didn't he like also put himself through conversion therapy? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, like this was somebody who struggled with their identity and to like have this kind of hearsay, this is what Orson Welles like ulterior motives were, may or may not have been. I, I, I don't love that. Yeah, the it's it, it's really tricky because. Yeah, who who really knows, especially when it's this game of telephone, but it's on the one hand, I think reading the film in that way actually just elevates the film further for me, but then thinking about the real human beings involved in the making of it and then how having that subtext within the film could impact their lives and careers and particularly Anthony Perkins makes me feel pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. When there's no confirmation that he was like, yes, I approve of this. But mm -hmm. I also think it's something you could also not read into the film. Oh, right? yeah. This is something that um, a lot of our friends who are watching The Last of Us but haven't seen the show have asked um, me. Sorry, they're, they're watching The Last of Us but haven't played the game? Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> that they asked, like, were Bill and Frank a couple in the game? Mm -hmm. and I'm like, well, yeah, but in a way that, like, if you wanted to ignore it, you probably could. Yeah. If you wanted to not see it, you probably could not see it. And so the, this film kind of feels like that, that you could read into his interactions with women in the film in very many different ways that might actually speak more to what the viewer, who the viewer is and how the viewer responds to these moments than specifically Anthony Perkins as a human being outside of the movie. Yeah. But it still is pretty icky if that was the intention knowing where Perkins' life goes from there. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that a a quote-unquote typical moviegoer would not know. Like, if they don't have the full backstory or knowledge right. on Anthony Perkins. Or, right? Yeah. Like, like, if we had watched the trial same time last year, we wouldn't have known that. Exactly. So there is a very, just watching it and taking what is on the screen as it is, and then there's the work that we do here at Bad Dad, Rad Dad of going digging a little bit deeper getting to the hard truths behind the, the films hard we, truths we watch. yeah we expose the hard truths um <laughs> roger ebert do you like him um he is in the same business as us in terms well, of not reviews. anymore he isn't but <laughs> <Our> <laughs> rip <laughs> he does have a cool website i think yeah, yeah um so he was really partial to this reading of the film and uh, i have a quote from him talking about the trial where he said that the film could be quote, interpreted as a nightmare in which women make demands Kay is uninterested in meeting. And that can be like a part of the trial of the film. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, homeboy, magician's body Perkins is the whole movie. There is this kind of main thing where he's trying to figure out what he's being put on trial for, but he's being put on trial for multiple things throughout the film. Absolutely. And specifically the reading that 
Roger Ebert just put into it, but there's multiple things that he's challenged by and quote unquote put on trial by throughout the film. Um, and it tests the audience too. I felt tested. I, the, yeah. I, I was just like, what, what is he being charged? <laughs> Absolutely. And I think like that to my understanding is the kind of heart of the book, which I haven't read. And so I don't have a whole lot to say about as an adapt adaptation of a very, prominent important novel mm -hmm. how it succeeds and usually i have lots of feelings about that um i have the trial i think in my to read pile upstairs right now mm, and cool. it's been there for years um one day yeah it's a stack of like 70 some books and i barely make it through five in a year i just buy new ones <laughs> and don't touch the ones that are already there but interestingly this was a this was a marathon of a day for us because we went and saw this at 3 30 and then my brother was having a birthday dinner with the family. The family is it for some cult with uh, with, or, with our family in the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were meeting with the family, um, just like a one minute walk from the theater. Mm -hmm. So we were like, okay, well, we live about half an hour drive away from the theater, so we're not going to go home. So we like went to a coffee shop across the street, then went to dinner with my brother, then went and met up with three of our very close friends who live nearby for half an hour at their house and then drove them to come with us to the next movie that we were seeing at 9.30 mm -hmm. at Metro again. But in this in-between when we were having dinner with the family, mm -hmm. um, we were sitting beside my brother, big table of lots of people, and he told him that we saw this. He hasn't seen it, but he has read the trial. He really likes it. Mm -hmm. He asked about the ending, which we obviously won't get into, but I was like, no, it didn't end like that. It ended like this. And he was like, wow, much more dramatic. <laughs> um, so he was already unimpressed with the adaptation just based yeah. on that one that one uh one moment so i guess we'll see once i mean you'll probably read the trial before i do but we'll uh we'll see how it holds up are you interested in reading kafka after yeah i think it'd be interesting to to delve into it a little bit do you know about the metamorphosis i know about it yeah does it interest you yeah it does you want to see citizen kane now yeah, I do. Oh, wow. Lots of, lots of things you want to do now. Yeah, I want to go deeper into the Orson Welles well, and I want to see that. For some reason, I thought he made 12 Angry Men. He didn't. But that's another one of those. Look at here, she, but I know people really like 12 Angry Men. So one day. Um, The interesting thing about this, though, is that based on what we saw in this film, and we like, we both really loved this movie, it's so surreal. It's really um, dreamlike. Yeah, but like nightmare logic. Yeah. Like it's it's one of those like it's scary, but there's nothing overtly scary about it. Um, it's a total mind fuck. But and also, also it's beautiful. And also hilarious. So this <laughs> this is my favorite piece of trivia I read and I'm so excited to tell you. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was one of the funniest things I've seen. There's one bit after the movie ended, you're like, I loved that. Oh, one. it's like legitimately one of the funniest jokes I've ever heard in my entire life, particularly maybe the funniest thing I've ever seen in a movie. I loved it so much. So Orson Welles himself thought that this was a very funny film. Mm -hmm. Not all audiences did. So I guess once he went to a screening of it, mm -hmm. he was sitting in the back and like laughing throughout the movie and audience members got visibly annoyed at the person laughing in the theater, not knowing it was the director of the film. <laughs> I fucking love that. <laughs> I, I relate to Orson Welles on like when you tell your own joke 
<laughs> and you laugh and at it. And then you laugh at it. You're the person that laughs hardest at it. I just love the, I love the thought of him sitting in the back being like, oh, this movie's so <laughs> funny. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Um, I have to, before we before we move on, um, just want to say a couple more things about Kafka because this movie immediately, I was like, this has everything I love about all my favorite types of media, art in general, like mm. is like this. And, you know, hearing the lecture, the little mini university lecture at the start made me wonder, like, is everything that we love originated from Kafka? <laughs> like, is Kafka-esque the true Twin Peaks effect of, of the things we love? Mm -hmm. um, but also, this was a fun marathon of a day between two movies and, and running around to coffee shops and friends' houses and dinners with the family. And what made it the most fun is it started with we knew this little mini university lecture was happening and um, we like to sit up in the mezzanine at Metro and you turned to me and you said, this guy looks like he fucks with Kafka. <laughs> um, and I was like, what? Uh, you were trying to predict who was going to give the little lecture. And I scanned the audience and Dr. Carpenter was just in this wonderful like outfit, nice very suit. academic, but yeah. like, a, like a tweed type suit yeah. with a, little notepad scribbling notes and like it's because I was scanning the audience being like why, why are you saying this in such a determined confident way and when my eyes saw him I just burst out laughing because I was like yeah you're absolutely right that guy fucks with Kafka <laughs> yeah. um, and sure enough that was the person who came up and delivered one of the funniest and most informative and entertaining intros to something at Metro we've seen I could take all my movies with a little mini university lecture. I yeah. loved it so much. It, it like brought a lot to the film and I really liked that they did that. And I was really thankful for like what he, um, like the, the kind of pre-knowledge he gave us before we started the film. I agree. It was excellent. And I would, I would absolutely love more mini lectures in front of the films that we see at Metro. So great. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was, this was awesome. I, I did not know what kind of experience I was going to have going into it. And I'm so grateful for the experience I had coming out of it. How did uh, the trial make you feel? It made me feel um, two things. It made me feel in awe of how classic cinema can feel so contemporary. Yeah. And it also made me feel so elated to know that I will keep finding new favorites from the past. Yeah. Like this is one of my favorite movies I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to watch it again. I can't wait to watch it with subtitles. I can't wait to watch it without people talking behind me that make me have to move seats. Um, oh my God, we did. Yeah. <laughs> but we moved and, and it, it was, this was an incident where I didn't consider it a piss audience because it was two people. There, mm -hmm. It was a very busy theater and it was just two people being doinks. The other like, 80 plus people in the room were incredibly respectful. So it wasn't an audience problem. It was a two dinguses problem. Yeah. And we couldn't pinpoint the dinguses. Yeah. So we just moved. Um, and I think that was a good choice, but I am really looking forward to watching this again at home and, and like many times over the course of the rest of our lives. So mm -hmm. I'm just so watching movies like this and knowing that like the things that have inspired my favorite stuff and like, I just there's new things to discover from the past still. Yeah. That I will love. And that is so cool. Do you think you'd ever teach this? Or is it no. Too <laughs> <laughs> no, I also too heady. I will no also I just I don't teach things that are like ten out of tens for me because of the it'll ruin them. Yeah, that's fair. Um so like I I I wouldn't be able to handle putting this on and having students be like, This is boring. Yeah. Like I'll never teach after just walking and talking. 
What's this long guy doing? They're for sure. I mean, sometimes I'm more likely to teach something that I really love Eights in a nines. creative writing class. Right. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't show the whole movie, but maybe I'd show clips of it. I also, um, I could see this being something that like I show clips of to, to like particular students individually as inspiration for projects they're working on. Like I have a student right now mm. who I'm like this parts of this film, even like just that opening scene you described would be a very applicable like mentor text for the, the like project that's currently being worked on. But no, I wouldn't teach it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, How did it make you feel? I No, I echo, I echo a lot of what you were saying too, of just that, yeah, that, that excitement of finding something that's been around for so long and discovering it for the first time. And yeah, just writing that high of, wow, I just, this thing that's existed for so long can so easily become one of my favorite things I've ever seen. Um, and I, I also felt just like completely compelled from beginning to end. Such a great movie. And it's, it's, um, I think that its influence has just, it rings so true in so many more contemporary filmmakers that I love. So it's just fun to see the, the Twin Peaks effect of the Twin Peaks effect in action. It's also important to note that like it's hard to split apart what's influence from like this film adaptation and what's just influence from Kafka's writing. Cause like David Lynch, I looked it up after and like for sure David Lynch's work is described as Kafka as because I was like, this feels like a direct inspiration to Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Um, but like David Lynch famously loves Kafka's writing. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's amazing. Anyway. All right. Different type of movie. Yeah. So we, yeah, we had a whirlwind. 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 (laughs) (laughs) I like that term too. Our world was a wind when we went to this movie, had a bunch of other stuff, and then went to another another movie at 9.30 p.m. And that movie was the 1996 crime thriller Bound. Um, it was directed and written by Lily and Lana Wachowski. I believe it's their first feature film. Mm. Um, but I should probably look that up and confirm it. It stars Jennifer Tilly as Violet, Gina Gershon as Corky, Joe Pantoliano. Is that how you say it? That's it. As Caesar, and Christopher Maloney as Johnny. He is indeed from Law and Order SVU. Dunk dunk. <laughs> <laughs> the synopsis for Bound is tough ex-con Corky and her lover Violet concoct a scheme to steal millions of stashed mob money and pin the blame on Violet's crooked boyfriend, Caesar. I've been wanting to see this forever because it's a like staple queer movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, I think, a movie that's been reevaluated for its importance to queer cinema um, since Lily and Lana Wachowski have like embraced their, their, their selves. Um, and I just have always really wanted to see it. So as soon as it was like playing at Metro, I was like, well, we got to go see it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we took our three close friends, Sanford, Alex and Max made them come with us and we all watched it together. What did you think of bound? Yeah. Going into this, knowing that this was a pre matrix Wachowski film had me really excited, but also the fact that it is such a big part of queer cinema also had me excited, but I knew nothing else about it. Um, plot wise it's not their first feature film. what do you know what is assassins 
All right. Um, this was their second feature film. So uh, misspoke, I misspoke, I misspoke. But still, still impressive that their third feature film is The Matrix. <laughs> it is wild. I just want to quickly, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm looking at, so they're, they have done one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They've done 11 feature films. Their second lowest budget for a film was $50 million for their first feature, Assassins. Mm-hmm. This was $6 million. This was $6 million? Yeah. I mean... But that's so significantly less. So they have um, Assassins, The Matrix, and V for Vendetta are all in that like 50 to $65 million mark. And then they have like... The Matrix sequels are all $150 million plus. Um, like Speed Racer, Cloud Out... Cloud Atlas and Jupiter Ascending are all like 100 million plus. Like this bound is so it is an outlier when you're looking at this budget list. Here that is a testament though to the ingenuity of the Wachowskis mm-hmm. because this is all kind of just it mostly just takes place in one spot. Yep, it's it's almost a capsule film. Yeah. And they make use creative use of that space for the whole film to make it compelling. So that's great. Um, I love how much it just revels in its queerness at the start of it. The very sexy pexiness that exists (laughs) between Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon is it it just like (laughs) it's borderline hammy, but kind of in the best way, like the most entertaining way. And it's also like everybody's in on that joke. Right. Like, yeah, as soon as we got out of the theater and we kind of like stood around in the lobby and chatted for a little bit, like which we we tend to do that when we go to see a movie with friends and we didn't carpool or like we know we're not hanging out after Um, you and me usually like debrief on like the drive home because we've always got a 30 minute drive home Mm -hmm. Um, and our three friends were just like, oh, it was so camp. Yeah. So everybody was in on it. Right. Was in on this like seductive (laughs) um, like. And I mean, Corky is a total babe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But in like the, in a Shane from the L word kind of way where it's like, of course, everybody's in love with her. Like, how could you not be? Um, I also read though, this is really interesting, but also a little difficult to think about. Um, They were considering quite seriously Gina Gershon being Trinity in the Matrix. Uh, I I mean, I can totally I think she would have been great. Yeah. But I mean, it's, no matter what, Trinity would have been a babe. Oh, yeah. And like <laughs> so badass. Yeah. Which is just awesome. I'm Carrie Ann Moss does great work and I don't like wish Gina Gershon was in there, but it's just like a great consideration. Yeah. 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 I love that. I just yeah, it's everything you said. I'm I'm so happy they weren't afraid to shy away from the very like kind of cheesy, erotic, fan fiction-y, tropey kind of language that existed in the dialogue between um Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon but one one thing I was kind of a little bit sad about was that as the crime element started to rise in the story then that whole kind of relationship dynamic started to take a back seat yeah and that was something that like I, I really enjoyed the movie and I'm so glad that I've seen it but I don't see myself revisiting it a ton if ever and I think it's because I'm really just not all that interested in crime mob movies. Mm-hmm. So I'm able to let that slide because this is a queer film. And I'll pretty much, if it's a queer film, I'll watch almost any genre, even if it's not typically the genre I would watch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but when it started to get really into that and and you're right and Corky and um, Violet and their dynamic is pretty much absent which makes sense within what's happening in the film I I was like because let me be clear um, the Wachowskis do a fantastic job of the mafia mob stuff. I just don't care for mafia mob stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they were doing a wonderful job and I could see how people who like those kinds of films, but also like are looking for more diverse cinema, looking for queer cinema, like this would be a favorite film. Yeah. I mean, because it does both so well. Yeah. I mean, mafia crimes st- stuff. Uh, I definitely I'll I'll I've I think I've just watched more of it. Like I've seen some of The Sopranos. I've seen Goodfellas. I've seen Godfather. I've seen Godfather. Um, I've seen Scarface. I've seen The Departed. No, and I've seen um, Donnie Brasco because Johnny Depp was in it. Have you liked any of that stuff? No, I liked Donnie Brasco because Johnny Depp was in it. So I think I have more. Joe to- Pepsi's in that. Too. Joe Joe Pepsi. Um. So I think I just have a little bit more tolerance for it. it. But yeah, it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite genre. But I could definitely like tell as soon as that stuff started ratcheting up. I'm like, oh, Kylie's. We're, we're, <laughs> you we're, knew. <laughs> we're at risk. We're going to lose Kylie a little bit here. And and we did. Um, I'm thankful I saw it in the theater because I think at home I would have been like itching for mm. like, where's my phone? I got to go pee, like whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that was a bit of a bummer is that because you have ADHD, I think you might have forgotten this. But when we watched Queer for Fear, they ruined the ending of the movie. I did forget that. Yeah. So I knew how it was going to end because they showed it on Queer for Fear. Mm. Um, and prior to watching that episode of Queer for Fear, which was in like October, I didn't know really much about this movie other than it's super gay and the Wachowskis made it before The Matrix. Mm. Um, and so... I could see how <laughs> I got to hold on to that ignorance because <laughs> yeah. uh, right off the top, I said, that's what I remember. Things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your brain is just like, oh, I saw that and it's gone. Um, yeah. So that's poopy. It is poopy because I'm like, I, I think the ending is pretty great. Yeah. And had I not known that was going to happen, it might have kind of allowed me to forgive some of what I what I personally don't care for about more of the mob story, mm-hmm. which if you like mob stuff, I think you would love. Like so many people that I follow on Letterboxd have given this five stars. And the only reason I didn't is because like I'm just not a mafia movie person. It's totally a personal thing. Yeah, I, I can totally see if you love queer shit and you love mob shit. This, this is an easy This is a slam dunk. Why not? You talked a lot about how you loved seeing the makings of the matrix in it. Like the oh, things that yeah. that have become just like staples in Wachowski work, but also like we love the matrix. Yeah. So things that have that, like they're kind of testing out exploring hmm. that become so prominent in the matrix. It's so leather, <laughs> the leather. Yeah. The wardrobes, sunglasses, some, some of the camera work even. Yeah. And, and the music. Yep. Um, yeah, it's always so cool. And because we've just ratcheted up the number of movies we've been watching <laughs> in these past two years, it's so cool to watch something newer and then revisit something 
maybe even something we've seen before from those filmmakers and you can start seeing the groundwork layered in it. I mean, more, more recently we covered Swiss army man and you see so many strokes of everything everywhere. At least I did in that film that led them to everything everywhere and the things that they needed to finesse or the things they were clearly passionate about. Yeah. You could totally see that in bound all the things that we mentioned of how it's just like, we love this stuff. We love kind of living in these, weird camera movements or these music cues let's pull that (laughs) these leather outfits let's pull that into this i'll say it this masterpiece that we're going to make in three years what's also in a slightly different direction just to really wild about um the films we watched this week is we watched two movies made in 1996 that are lesbian movies we did. We did. Uh, Metro was playing both of them, so maybe that was part of their like <laughs> a clever curation. Um, but also, both of those films are considered to have, um, like, each of them individually are spoken about often as having the most, um, I don't know what the right word would be, impressive, impressive. sex scenes. So, like, Bound yeah. and, and a movie we're going to talk about in a little bit as, like, having, like, these... Um, foundationally important sex scenes that don't feel that feel like true to the queer experience it's without being objectifying or um like from a straight male point of view it's not blue is the warmest color. it is not blue is the warmest color um so it's kind of wild that we watched both of these both from the same year and it's really it's really easy to forget the 90s don't feel that long ago Mm -hmm. that like things were very different then. So a mm-hmm. lot of the trivia for this film is, you know, one of the first ones is um, when the Wachowskis were like shopping the script around, um, executives were like, yep, if you change Corky to a man. Go fuck yourself. And the Wachowskis, I love this so much, said, quote, that movie's been made a million times. We're really not interested. Fuck yeah. Uh, also... Gina Gershon wanted to make the film and her agent said, that's a mistake that's going to hurt your career. Don't do something with lesbian content. Um, Also, the Wachowskis are like very new directors. Like, don't do it. Gershon did it because she loved the script and then she fired her agent. Amazing. (laughs) Like, I just love the like commitment everyone had. And the other thing that I think is really important, of course, reevaluating this film now, we know that the Wachowskis are like mega queer Mm -hmm. and the two of them have done such good work um, to use their position within the industry to support trans voices, queer voices, and take on some like smaller uh, projects in production. Um, but that wasn't necessarily understood at the time that this film was made. And one of the things that they did is they hired Susie Bright, who's like a very well-known. This is another thing that uh, the next, the other 1996 lesbian film that we're going to talk about has in common is these like, very small uh, cameos from very specific like gender studies figures that like the average audience is probably going to miss. Mm-hmm. Um, so Susie Bright is like a lesbian sex writer, very prominent in the nineties, like consultant. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. she's somebody who like spoke about that kind of stuff and they hired her to be what we would probably now call an intimacy coordinator. Oh, cool. Um, but they hired her to be the one who consulted on the like uh, intimate scenes. That's lovely. And I, I think that, that is one of the most important things that a creator can do. And, it, you know, um, Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann have been talking a lot about this on The Last of Us. When you're speaking to something that 
isn't your own experience, which of course we now understand this is the Wachowski's experience, but at the time bringing in another person um, is so important mm-hmm. to not just be like blue is the warmest color. Yeah. Right. And so they, <laughs> what they did is the Wachowski's, they really liked Susie Bright. They really liked her work. So they sent her the script and said, do you want to be an extra in the film? When she read it, she said, she thinks it's really amazing that the film has these scenes of women enjoying sex together and not apologizing for it. Um, but the script didn't have descriptions of the scenes, the erotic scenes themselves. And so she said, could I be a consultant? And they were like, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and then she's also in the uh, bar scene. She's oh, the woman great. that Corky tries to pick up. Oh, nice. Um, and I guess in that bar scene in general is just like, quote, real life San Francisco lesbians, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is really awesome. So I just yeah. think... In general, it seems like this was a real passion project. And even though the like mafia stuff ain't for me, um, it's really good movie. Yeah, it's it's great. I, I wanted to mention, too, I, I, I love all of that, by the way. I think that that is so great. And I love that they're even laying the groundwork for what is now kind of the um, it's kind of what's expected on Hollywood productions now is having an intimacy coordinator or including people who have the lived experience as consultants on, on projects. I think that it's so cool that the Wachowskis were big advocates for that so early on. Um, I just also wanted to mention, even though he plays a massive role in the whole crime portion of the film, Joe Pantoliano is great at playing unlikable characters. Ugh, I hate him. Like, and I think it's really cool that the Wachowskis obviously were really taken with the actors in this film because obviously, like you said, they wanted to take Gina Gershon and cast her as Trinity, but they actually took Joe Pantoliano and cast him as Cypher in The Matrix. And he is great at playing an unlikable character in The Matrix as well. I've also seen a few, a little bit of the, um, the Sopranos that he's in and he's, he's fucking douching that too. So he's just (laughs) like, I mean, he's obviously typecast, but he's really good at doing this one kind of character. But uh, I thought he was really great in this as well. This was fun. It was fun. And it was fun to see it with friends. Fun to see it on like a double feature movie day. Mm -hmm. Um, How did Bound make you feel? Um, Grateful that this walked so that the Matrix could, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) How did it make you feel? Uh, I also felt grateful. I felt grateful for this as like a little early mega, mega queer Wachowski sisters gem Mm -hmm. like it's just this little diamond in their like oeuvre not all of their movies have been total hits for me yeah but I mean I think we when we go back and we look at their early catalog their movies are so queer like V for Vendetta even right um Mm -hmm. and I just and like they were not like it was not subtext inbound the way that it's you know a portion of V for Vendetta are more like you have to infer it in the matrix. It is just like fully on display and bound was made before those films. Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes me wonder too, because now, I mean, we've read so much and there's so much you can look into around the matrix and the queer storytelling that exists within the matrix that that's kind of hidden or sewn into in the, a way that like Orson Welles was trying to do with the trial apparently. Right. Yeah. But like I, you have to wonder that if the Wachowskis 
fully leaned into telling a queer story. Like if it was two women, two men, some trans folks, whoever it was that were kind of at the core of the storytelling and it wasn't Keanu Reeves and Trinity, if it would have been as successful, if it was the exact same story, but it was just probably not unfortunately more heavily into the queerness not 1999 i don't think yeah it would have been more pee pee poo poo but um, well audiences would have been more pee pee poo poo about it the movie probably would have been badass but yeah it would have still slapped because it's it's a masterpiece we haven't covered it on the show one day one day indeed yeah okay first mystery movie pick of the week was this guy's And I picked a film that's been rattling around my brain for a little while now and finally settled on it. I chose the the 2016 comedy drama musical La La Land. Um, It was written and directed by Damien Chazelle. It stars two beauties. Two beauties indeed. Brian Gosling as Sebastian and Emma Stone as Mia, as well as J.K. Simmons as Bill and Rosemary DeWitt as Laura. The synopsis is, while navigating their careers in Los Angeles, a pianist and a actress fall in love while attempting to reconcile their aspirations for the future. A what and an actress? A uh, a pianist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This is a long time coming. I I feel like, uh, and I, I might get into this a little bit later, but I feel like I've had a stinky attitude about this movie for a long time. Um, and maybe I'll get into this a little bit more, uh, after we tell our, (laughs) where were you when La La Land won and lost best picture story? Um, so I want you to take the lead on that and also tell me what you think about La La Land. You want me to start with the, where were you? Yeah. Okay. So I have a love hate relationship with awards shows. I'm, I think I'm much more cynical about them and feeling like they're a, just a marketing ploy. Yeah. And, and like that it's all about who has enough money to get in. And I just, yeah, I'm very cynical about them and yet I'm still invested in them. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, we, the, the awards year that La La Land was nominated, we had seen Moonlight. We really liked Moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really remember much of what else was nominated. What we tend to do when we watch awards shows is PVR them and start them about an hour or so in and then fast forward through stuff we don't care about. I mean, obviously the commercials, but also if there's like a speech that's just like real thank you, thank you, thank you, and they're not saying anything, we tend to Mm -hmm. fast forward through those. Um, And then we inevitably catch up with the live recording. Mm -hmm. So when we were watching this one, as soon as La La Land won, we got angry and deleted the recording. Yeah, because we were, we were all in on Moonlight. We were all in on Moonlight. And we were like, okay, once again, the movie that is like... Kissing Hollywood's ass. Yeah, it wins. And we were just really, really frustrated. This was one time where we actually hadn't caught up to the live recording. And like we... Or we were like close to it. Mm-hmm. But we just deleted the recording, shut off the TV... And I picked up my phone and then I was like, oh, my God, Moonlight Moonlight (laughs) one. And then we were like scrambling to find like the immediate uploads to YouTube of what had happened. Mm -hmm. So we didn't actually watch it happen live, despite the fact that we were watching the awards because Mm -hmm. we were so mad. 
that La La Land had won. Yeah. Um, so it was a very strange experience. I still think it is one of the crappiest things that it has ever happened because it really stole the moment from Moonlight. Mm-hmm. And I get that accidents happen, but like Phoebus. Yeah. So that was that was really silly, but it also you kind of touched on it a bit, but it 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 added to this kind of stinky attitude that I've had about this movie for a while is that I just kind of when it came out, I'm just kind of like, this is kind of like the ooh, on Hollywood's ass movie. It's it's just trying and it's just like a bunch of white people explaining jazz to <laughs> white people. And it took away from Moonlight's moment. So I kind of just like put it on the poo-poo list for a really yeah. long time. Same. I already felt sour about it before the awards. And like this just being like, I'm not really that interested in this. And then after it, I was like, you're dead to me, La La Land. Well, yeah. Even though it's not La La Land's fault that that happened. No. Um, and yeah. And just like the fact that the uh, I remember in the moment just feeling like this movie is winning over a deeper more emotionally gratifying and unique black story why that is also like the thing about moonlight not we haven't covered it on the show but like moonlight felt like innovative filmmaking and we haven't started talking about la la land yet but as good as this film is it also does not feel that innovative to me sorry people who love la la land don't hurt me (laughs) let's talk about la la land well looking at my list of movies to watch i i revisited this and was looking at like so many people that i follow on letterboxd love this they they do it's and like people four that and a like, half out of fives and fives people like, i trust too and people who i tend to agree with yeah i'm just and it has a high rating i'm like okay i think now i'm i'm ready to open my mind and watch la la land and it is truly a wonderful film it is it's really well made yeah <laughs> <laughs> I mean, getting into some of the specifics, right out of the gate, so vibrant, opens with a one Love that. Um, but like, <laughs> it, it, it came on and it's a while before we get to the title card. And you're like, what is this? And then a musical number kicks in and you're like, this is a musical? What did you pick? Well, and it's it's really interesting because I've, I've also been in a space, and I think it's um, people were watching La La Land again because of Babylon. Um, coming out and because you know they're both made by Damien Chazelle and they both are about Hollywood so it's kind of been making its way back onto like letterbox with the people that I follow Mm. Um, also I think people around award season often watch like older awards movies too Mm -hmm. Um, and I had been considering picking it oh nice Um, but it wasn't on anything yeah so I you know didn't um, but then I was like, I don't actually know what this is. Is it La La Land? And, and, and it was, but that's not really how I expected it to start, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I didn't know. Yeah. Like I, I didn't really know a lot about it and how heavily it leaned into musical, um, or didn't. Um, but like I was saying, getting into the, the specifics of what makes this film so wonderful. First off, it's so vibrant. Yeah. The colors are beautiful. The colors and the pacing. Like yeah. some of the, and like the choices with like the camera work and doing like these really cool, there's a cool sequence in a jazz club with like a lot of whip pans between uh, Ryan Gosling playing the piano and then Emma Dan- Emma, Emma Stone doing her like very quirky dancing, um, which is just totally wonderful. But I mean, the, 
the meat and potatoes of this film. We said no more of that. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, are Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, um, who are both two people I really enjoy watching. Yeah, this is an interesting thing for me because I also really enjoy watching them, but I'm not like a mega fan of either of them. Like yeah. if, if I go to watch something that they're in, I'm like, this is really nice. But I don't specifically watch things because they're in it the way yes. I do with other people. Yes, that's very true. Otherwise, we would have watched this. But they're both beautiful. Like Ryan Gosling is yeah. just like unequivocally, like no debate, a beautiful looking human being. Yeah. Which is and Canadian. They're both are they both Canadian? I don't think Emma Stone's Canadian. I actually think she might be. Let's look. Googling intensifies. Ryan Gosling for sure is from Ontario, I believe. Yeah. He was on Breaker High or whatever. Yeah, I watched that as a kid, so I'm an OG Ryan Gosling fan. He's American. Oh. Well He was born in Scottsdale, Arizona. That is disappointing, Emma Stone. Be Canadian already. I wanna say I love I I I I love both of the both of these actors, but I also really love Ryan Gosling getting worked up for comedy's sake. Moments like that, like think like the papyrus SNL bit where mm -hmm. he gets worked up. He has a few moments of where he just kind of freaks out a little bit <laughs> in this movie, and he does it so well. He knows how to really deliver a really great comedy beat, and I love it when it happens because he's. Somebody who you just kind of think of, oh, Ryan Gosling, he's from Drive. He's really like sexy and cool and composed, but he, he can have these moments where he's just yelling for no reason. And I, I, I love a bit like that. I do love that you, Elliot Cuss, believe that Ryan Gosling is sexy and cool and composed. Yeah, he is. He is. He, he is a beautiful man. And the two of them together have really great chemistry. Like I used to really like um, crazy, stupid love. I have a feeling if I watched it now, I wouldn't feel the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but the two of them are really great together in that film. Mm -hmm. I can see why this is so many people's favorite movie. Yeah. I feel totally. a little bit like how I just spoke about bound in that from a craft perspective, I get it. Yes. But I have to acknowledge that like old Hollywood stuff is just not my thing yeah like where the the kind of core conflict is like the industry man i'm just trying to make it big yeah like it just it it didn't work for me in quirky under the silver lake it doesn't work for me in once upon a time in hollywood and it this is the most it's worked for me but, but even that's because it's so, dressed up really nicely yeah ish i don't know when hmm. it gets into all of the old hollywood stuff it just I'm not, it doesn't elevate it for me the mm. way I think it elevates it for other people. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and, I, and I'm agree. missing it. Like I just, I'm not somebody who watches old Hollywood movies. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of homage and Easter egg that I just don't see because I don't know it. It would be like somebody watching who doesn't like horror movies, but doesn't hate them. And watching something that's just, or like Cabin in the Woods, which is just like, we, you watch that one scene in Cabin in the Woods and we're like, there's Pinhead, there's this, there's that. Yeah. That would be totally lost on someone who doesn't watch horror movies. And so they might like Cabin in the Woods, but they don't love Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. And that's how I feel about this. I'm just not somebody who has seen a lot of old Hollywood stuff or is interested in seeing a lot of it. And it's a love letter to that. While I think it's also a bit of a critique, which is cool. Yeah. It's just not fully my thing. Yeah. I also like don't think I have any interest really ever in going to Los Angeles. 
<laughs> yeah. Like I'm much more drawn to New York mm-hmm. as a um, representation of America mm-hmm. than I am as Los Angeles. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it just didn't hit on, you know, seeing so many people hit the hit this with a four and a half out of five or a five. It doesn't hit the emotional beats that push movies into a four and a half and a five. Yeah. Or, for me, yeah. Or just, yeah, just give me that feel. Like the way that the trial was just like, I got to the end of it and I'm like, this is a five out of five. Yeah, I'm just, the whole experience, I was glued to the screen and just, it did something to me personally. Yeah. Whereas I felt the film existed and I existed and that was it. Yeah. When a film is a four and a half or a five for me, I felt like, the th- I feel like the film and I have become one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, the film is now a part of me permanently. And La La Land, I'm like, I saw it. La La Land is kind of, you know, if we still did this, like when I lived at home, if a movie was just on TV, you just kind of end up watching it. Yeah. And if La La Land was on, it's like, oh, it's La La Land. Okay, I'll I'll sit down and watch La La Land. So here's the thing, though, because I do truly get why this is so many people's favorite movie. And I also understand why it was nominated for so many awards. The ending is amazing. Yeah. Like the the last 20-ish minutes of this movie, truly phenomenal. Like five out of five for me. But the rest of it didn't have me gripped enough to want to revisit it just to watch the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's tricky. I also, like, oh, I don't know if this is a controversial statement here. I don't think it should have been a musical. I think it should have had the dancing, but I don't think it should have had the singing. Because it didn't do it enough. Yeah. It, it like, I felt like it was a little self-conscious. It, <laughs> yeah. But like do we thing, or don't we? But like the thing is, the music is so good. Like the, not necessarily the musical numbers, but the music as a whole. Agreed. Is so good. Agreed. Um, But yeah, it's kind of like, okay, should we put a little song in here? Okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I mean, like I, I get really annoyed when people are like, this would make a movie better. So I'm not. I'm not saying that as a whole because people love this movie. But for me, I wish it had either gone more musical or less musical and just had these like few moments of like surreality that are really tied specifically to our characters. But the opening number is not tied to our characters. And and it really makes it seem like this is going to be a very musical movie. Yeah. Like it starts very skid row. Yeah, yeah. But then it doesn't maintain like suddenly Seymour and, you <laughs> yeah. know, <laughs> and just so you know, dentist. The, the bar that we hold for all musicals is Little Shop of Horrors. 100%. Um, so like I, I honestly could have done without any of the musical numbers, but I was really enchanted with the um, the movies, the movies, the moments of um, surreality where they were dancing. The dancing was great. Yeah. But those weren't always tied to singing. Yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm totally with you. And it, it's, yeah, it's not this thing of like the movie would have been better if this, like you're saying, I think it's just, it made me feel like, what am I watching? Yeah. Like, is, is this a musical is or is it musical? not a musical? Yeah. And I think that causing that confusion with like within both of us kind of speaks to the f- the filmmaking decisions of I don't know it just felt like uncertainty to me, but um, that's but m- for most people it doesn't feel that way so I think it's just an us thing. 
Yeah, well, you know, I guess pee-pee poo-poo on us. What do we know? We haven't made something that's one best picture for two minutes. We haven't. Um, Ryan, Ryan Gosling plays Ryan his own did. piano. Yeah, dude, like, this is the thing. <laughs> it's like anytime he was singing or playing piano, I just wanted to go listen to Dead Man's Bones. <laughs> I know, me too. And I, and I think um, I was pretty cool with like moments of diegetic music. I mean, I guess like moments where he's like playing on stage. Yeah. And it's not like a musical number, mm-hmm. but it's like he is playing a song on the stage. Like more whiplash, I guess. I also feel that since this has come out, through the pandemic, we became more frequent jazz listeners. We listen to jazz at dinner time a lot. It's pretty like pretty chill. It's <laughs> the playlist is called Jazz Chill. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure the jazz is like not jazz that anyone who actually likes jazz would approve of. Yeah, but um, we do <laughs> listen to Jazz Chill playlist while we have dinner. Well, we've become bigger appreciators of throwing on jazz more often. So I feel like for me the the jazz that was coming up in this i i enjoyed a lot more than i probably would have around the time that la la land came out just saying yeah no i like i liked this movie yeah but i did not love this movie yeah i'm not in love with it yeah i'm not like chomping at the bit to revisit it every year or anything like that but i am i'm grateful that the opportunity like i was i recognized that this was an opportunity to open myself up to watching it and finally seeing it. How did it make you feel? It made me feel enchanted. That's nice. Yeah. I, I did. Honestly, it sounds like we really hated it. We didn't. I really, really liked it. It's just not one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. I really liked it. Solid four out of five. Yeah. Which is like a really impressive score. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I mean, it made me feel grateful. I was able to come around and enjoy it in all of its colorful glory. That's sweet. Mm-hmm. Doing a lot of kissing this round. We only got one mystery pick each this week. Mm-hmm. I picked something strange. <laughs> I picked the 1995 comedy drama Welcome to the Dollhouse. And in, on reflection, I wonder if I picked it because I just started teaching at Doll's House. And if just like the word dollhouse was rattling around in my brain. Mm. I, I find the title of this film very evocative. And I also really like the poster for it. I knew nothing about it. I was just like, people like it. Cool title, cool poster. So this was directed and written by Todd Salons, which I didn't even know until I like decided to pick it. You didn't know who he was. Nope. So we will get into that. It stars Heather Matarazzo as Don Wiener. <laughs> Brendan Saxton III as Brandon McCarthy. Daria Kalinina as Missy Wiener and Matthew Faber as Mark Wiener. The synopsis for this film is an awkward seventh grader struggles to cope with inattentive parents, snobbish classmates, a smarter older brother, an attractive younger sister, and her own insecurities in suburban New Jersey. What was her last name again? Wiener. Thank you. What did you think of Welcome to the Dollhouse? Yeah, I had no clue what I was getting into. Um, This was wild. Truly. Um, That said, it gave me some complicated feelings. Because it was simultaneously hilarious. Like some of the lines in this are killers. They had me laughing so hard. But there is some very upsetting and disturbing stuff that is said in this movie that got under my skin. I was like, oh, yucky. Yeah. And so that's um, 
when I told you as we were watching it, it was a it was a Todd Salons movie, and this was our first Todd Salons movie. You were like, I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh well, he's known for that. Like he's known for having pretty disturbing content within these kind of comedic films. And I think he's often spoken about as like unearthing the like dark underbelly of suburban America in like a blue velvet kind of way, except like the genre is different. He's doing that within a comedy Mm -hmm. and he's part of that kind of icky cinema movement, like Yorgos Lanthimos and Mm -hmm. um, Lars von Trier and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, But you didn't know who he was. No. So you you were prepared. I mean, I had never seen anything by him, but I knew this about him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is one of his lighter icky movies. Yeah, that, learning that after the fact, I was like, I, I want to watch more of his films. But do I? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it, it really pulled the carpet out from under me because I was like, pulled the rug out from under me? Yeah. Um, that the I was carpet's impressive. The, yeah, the whole carpet. Um, that I was laughing so hard, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of a in the middle of a belly laugh, I'm just like, oh. But that's impressive, right? To it's tone shift really that much? uncomfortable. Yeah. So I was reading a little bit about it after there wasn't a whole lot, like readily accessible to read about this film. I'm sure there is a whole lot out there, but I would just have to like be more. Um, Sleuthy. Yeah. Yes. But there was a conversation about it on Reddit, and one Reddit user said um, that tone shifting that is done so expertly, really, it's impressive. Having these awful things happen and yet having all happen and be said, and yet the comedy being so strong makes the audience laugh, even as these awful things are happening, making us the bullies. Yeah, and that's why I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, but there's a there's a real impressive craft to that mm-hmm. of you know challenging the viewer in what they feel. You know, because I think of there's films like this that just go pure comedy, like more of a um, Judd Apatow type film. Mm-hmm where we aren't confronted with maybe it's not cool to laugh about these things. Yeah. Whereas this film confronts us with that. Yeah. And one like, makes us feel better. Yeah. But the other is maybe more complex. Well, it's like you said, it's the, uh, it's scratching that underbelly. Yeah. Um, and reveling in it. And that's a tough pill to swallow at times. And it is tricky because this um we were having a real mid nineties week. Uh not the movie mid nineties. I hate that Maybe movie. Poo-poo. Um but we watched a nineteen ninety five film and two nineteen ninety six films, which is interesting. Um It's been really nice though. I've kind of been <laughs> well, it feels like living being, in the nineties. You know, it feels like we grew that's where we grew up, right? Yeah. So but this film, you know, brings you right back to the type of language that was being used in the nineties, which like you wouldn't readily see on a sitcom or a more blockbuster movie today. Mm-hmm. I I watch Fresh Prince with one of my classes every Friday and some of the lighter inappropriate words in this, um, one of them showed up in a, starts with an R, mm-hmm. in a mo- more recent episode of the, or not a recent, but in the episode we watched this week of Fresh Prince and my students were like, oh, you know, like that's just, we just don't hear that word in like popular media anymore. And when we mm-hmm. do, it's like, Excuse me. 
that it's just like it's like a brick now. But that these words are being said all the time. Yeah. Like the insults that make us feel icky because it's about this, this poor, awkward seventh grader who's trying to like figure out who she is and people are so mean to her. Like honestly, she's Meg Griffin. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good comparison. And it's really icky. Her family is as mean to her as the kids at school are. But those words, we were probably saying them. Yeah. So there's two things going on. There's one is there's a bit of like social whiplash because these words have fallen out of disuse. Although as someone who works in a school, I would say not as much as we'd like to think. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you go to a junior high now, you'd hear more of these than you'd like to think you'd hear. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing is it's also honest. Yeah. And it's uncomfortable to hear honest things. Yeah. I I feel like in everything that, they really captured some of the brutal realities of being a junior high, a junior high kid. And so it's about that question of like comfort versus realism. Yeah. Right. Like real things are pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. And you know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I just like when I think about what I thought of this movie, I think it was hilarious. And I also think I was so upset. Yeah. Very like how I've, often feel in Michael Haneke films mm-hmm. like the piano teacher and funny games or I'm just like, I really like it, but also I feel really gross that I like it. I feel that way about your Anthemos too, where I'm like, I really like this, but I feel icky that I like this feels wrong that I like this. Well, yeah. And I mean like reflecting back, this movie really made me reflect on being back in junior high and just the mentality of a junior high, a kid in junior high. And I mean, shock humor was kind of the biggest thing of it all it was all about who can push the bounds of telling the most upsetting most offensive ridiculous joke at the expense of somebody or a group of people whatever it is Mm -hmm. and and just make all your friends laugh Mm -hmm. or or i feel like also like bullying is super prevalent even more so in junior high because there's just that blend of like you're kind of the kids are all being fed in I mean, at least in the junior high I went to are being fed in from multiple schools from around. So there's like friend groups that have existed for so long. And then, and then new kids coming in that don't have these friend groups. And there's this mix is just rife with bullying and punching down. And it's, it can be really nasty. And while I don't necessarily know about the States as much, like here, our schools are often seven to nine and then 10 to 12, but in our seven to nine schools, you're with one group of students that you have all your classes with. But by the time you get to high school, you have like your schedule is kind of your own. Yeah. Right. So here students are all mixed together that by grade 10 might no longer be mixed together. And it's just a totally different. I mean, if you watched this on a double feature with eighth, Bo Burnham's eighth grade, it would be really painful. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. To have like one set in the nineties and one set, now and like so little has changed it's different right it feels like in eighth grade i can't remember the character's name but elsie fisher's character um so much of her feelings are inward feelings that Mm -hmm. um are her own like internal struggles based on the horror that is social media and this yeah. is kind of the opposite of that. But to look at how it's still so awful in just in different ways is like really crap. 
Yeah. Yeah. It it really like yeah, acre acre is a good comparison, but I feel like here too, it just like explores and really picks at the fragility of us at this junior high age. Yeah. And the flurry of emotions that we can have and that we wrestle with around this this age. It made me reflective of how strategic you have to be of like, okay, if I join this club or if I join this sports team or if I hang around these people, then there's this level of feeling protected by the social equity that you have within these groups. This is going to come up again in another film we watched this week that's set now. Yeah. And it's just, it's, 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 it's this unfortunate timeless thing that we all have to wrestle with. And I mean, we do it to a degree as adults too, but it's definitely a lot more of it kind of is like water rolling off of our back a little bit. It's very raw. Yeah. At at that age. Um, I have a, it's an equally like the movie itself. It's both sad and also kind of lovely. So Heather Mazzarato, who I love in the movie Strike. I love that movie. Also want to say she's excellent in this. Oh yeah. So I, good. I did struggle with watching this though with, and I, you know, ever since reading Sarah Pauly's um, nonfiction book, Run Towards the Danger, I'm very aware of how fucked up it is to work with child actors. Me too. Like to have a young girl who's literally positioned as ugly throughout the movie played by a real person and is like literally the the butt of every yeah, like I, joke in I would be I, I was trying to find information and again I'm sure it's out there somewhere but I was struggling to easily find it um about how Matarazzo feels about the film now as an adult and you know how salons like worked to take care of her because I just think like part of me also felt icky about that like this is a young girl playing this role like how did can you even make sure she's protected mm-hmm. from like the response from others after this movie the emotional toll to be a part of it like you know that's that's really tricky but one of the things i did find out uh, is that so i don't know if you know this but matarazzo's gay yeah she's been in the l word so that's that's a sure sign that like that you've made it in queer <laughs> queer hollywood <laughs> when you get to be on the l word if you're a woman um but she said this movie helped her understand that she was gay because one of the main insults of the film is people calling her lesbo, which feels so 90s, yeah. unfortunately. And when she was wa- when she was filming it, she was like, she looked into what that word meant. And then I have a quote from her where she said, when I realized what it meant, I thought, quote, oh my God, that's what I am, a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> but then cute. this is the sad part of it. She was really young and she was in a, a fairly... Christian, I believe, family. And so she, well, this film helped her understand that she is queer. Um, she didn't come out for for many years after this. And she said she, quote, became apologetic, ashamed, and secretive about it. So this film helped her come to a realization about her identity. But she it, then had to bury it. But then she buried it. Yeah. Ugh. So it's really that's sad. Both that's, sweet and sad. That's also like what the fuck? Like if her family is as Christian as that. They let her be in this movie. How was she in this movie? <laughs> yeah. Wild. Okay. Yeah, this movie is um, it's something else. I 
I both really liked it and really didn't like it and both want to watch other things that Salons has done. And also I'm scared as hell to watch other things that he's done. Yeah. I mean, if this is what he's doing with junior high age kids storytelling, like God help us when we get to adult storytelling. But I read that his, and I did share this with you that his next film is going to have Rachel Wise and Colin Farrell in it. And it's like a, a lobster reunion. Are you kidding me? I'm there but it's going to be a contemporary take on Oedipus. So I'm sure that'll be real comfy. <laughs> yeah. Real comfy. We'll see. Um, how did Welcome to the Dollhouse make you feel? Complicatedly gobsmacked. Yeah. A lot of feelings. Yeah. How about you? I think it's really <laughs> impossible for me to watch a junior high, a very highly realistic film about a junior high age girl as someone who was once a junior high age girl. Yeah. And not perhaps find it funnier than you because it's my experience. Like Mm -hmm. I I think I think eighth grade is funnier than you think it is because it's part of me is like able to laugh at the pain that I went through. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, So what I really felt from this film was just a rage at how unfair life can be in the most mundane ways. Like everything said and done, Don Wiener's a fairly privileged kid. Mm -hmm. And yet her life is so painful. Yeah. And it's in like the most... blandly suburban ways and yet it's painful nonetheless and so just like the like just the yeah the unfairness and painfulness of life is just crap especially for a especially when you're the age of don wiener so interesting it's and it's so unintentional that we have a couple movies this week that just echo each other um in in kind of contrasting ways yeah yeah like yeah, I agree. Maybe we'll talk about that once we've talked about all of them. Yeah, we kind of let's let's roll into the next film, um, which you know is a bit of that contrasting echo um, to Bound. We went and saw the nineteen ninety six comedy drama romance, The Watermelon Woman. It was written and directed by Cheryl Dunier, uh, as well as written by Douglas McCowan. Uh, it stars Cheryl Dunier as Cheryl and Guinevere. Turner as Diana. I love that name. Guinevere. <laughs> so good. Um, and uh, I just want to add uh, Valerie Walker as Tamara, Tamara and Lisa Marie Bronson as Faye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The synopsis is a young black lesbian filmmaker probes into the life of the watermelon woman, a 1930s black actress who played Mammy archetypes. I, it's really funny. Uh, I can't remember what episode of ours it was, but there was a week where we started the week with two movies that had the word woman in the title and I secretly wanted to try to have a full week where every movie we watched had the word woman in it. Mm-hmm. And this was one I was considering as the next one, but it uh, it wasn't on any streaming services. So I was really grateful because I was really excited for it. So I was really grateful when Metro was showing it this week and we and we got to and we got to finally see it. So what did you think of the watermelon woman? I really loved this movie. Very good. Yeah, it was it was interesting because right before we sat down to start recording, you said we watched a lot of really great movies this week. And I agree, but none of these are necessarily a movie that if we just said we watched this this week, that everybody would be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that's an amazing movie. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't think everyone's heard of The Trial. I don't think everyone's heard of Bound. I don't think everyone's heard of The Watermelon Woman. Yeah. And yet there was a, I really liked them all. I didn't totally know what to expect from this film. Same. I don't think I even really knew it was 1996. No. This, of all of the 90s movies we watched, it's 
it just it made me miss the 90s yeah. so much in a way that welcome to the dollhouse made me not miss the 90s and all, mm-hmm. honestly welcome to the dollhouse kind of felt like it was the 70s yeah it had that very time period blendy yeah thing that like, it was a it little ambiguous has. yeah yeah but this is decidedly set in the 90s yeah and it is so 90s in aesthetic in tone (laughs) it was phenomenal the fashion the music oh every time a title card came up with its wacky (laughs) font (laughs) and transitions it was so 90s but in like the most wonderful way much of it is set in a video store yeah which made me desperately miss video stores yeah it just yeah the 90s of it all in this film already had me in love mm-hmm. and then the film itself it sneaks up on you how smart it is it's brilliant it's so it's so brilliant like by the end of the film i was like this is one of the smartest things i've ever seen yeah and i wasn't able to give it credit for how smart it was until the film was over and you like learn a couple things that some people might know going into it and some people might not know. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, I was like this, everything was so intentional. And when you're watching it, it feels like maybe it's not. Yeah. It reveals itself. It re- like it fully lays out. It lays all the cards on the table in the end credits. And I'm just like, oh, no way. Yeah. Like this was this kind of movie. What a phenomenal feature film. Yeah. Do you know that this is the first feature film made by a black lesbian who was out? Yeah, I read that. And I was like, that's incredible because it's in the way that so many of these kinds of movies tend to be like, I'm planting my flag here and like, see me and look at me. And it's really aggressive and in your face where a lot of films can take that direction. This is played so subtly and so realistically. But also, but it is, but like that is intrinsic to the film. Like, more than once in the film, the character of Cheryl says, I am Cheryl Dunyer. I am a black lesbian filmmaker. Yeah. And it, that it's just like. But it's just her life. And but like that in itself is so like I'm planting this flag in the ground and like you can go fuck yourself because this is me and my life and the story I want to tell. I don't understand the difference between the two things you're saying. I feel like one can be more rah-rah and less nuanced. Can you think of an example? Um. No. Okay. <laughs> so I, I'm, yeah, I'm struggling to see the difference in what you're saying because I actually think it's really impressive that this film is very clear about who made it, what it's about, but that's just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. It's not a production. It's just, and yet it is, maybe, of course. Maybe I'm thinking more of just like when, <laughs> this is actually kind of counter to I was thinking like more of when non-queer people make a film about queer people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I was struggling of like making that comparison because we watched Bound, but Bound was made by queer people, not necessarily yeah. starring queer people. Yeah. Um, But I, yeah, like it's it, like a blue is the warmest color. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's the, I don't know. This film doesn't feel like it's trying to be shocking in any way. And neither no. does Bound. Like it yeah. feels like this is the reality of the film that I am making. And yeah. if you don't like it, you don't like it. Yeah. I haven't articulated myself very well, but like I just I felt the 
the power in how I've just like, yeah, like, like kind of like the rawness of, of this and the realism that existed in this and how drawn in I was by Cheryl, uh, yeah. both as the character, but also you could see glimpses of her as a filmmaker. And I just, I really, I really loved her approach to this film. And yeah. that, like you said, the things that she did with this film and chose to put on display, I thought it, I thought it was, ex- I thought it was excellent. I thought it was so smart. It's, it's, really impressive like it's a really i really loved this movie i love there's moments you had to kind of educate me after the fact but (laughs) like there's moments where she takes the piss out of very prominent people in the academic world in terms of queerness and Mm, more like feminist academia yeah not not queer academia but feminist academia Yeah, you know better than me but yeah i have so i have a gender studies degree and um I felt like it paid off here mm-hmm. because there was a um, very <laughs> amazing, but like blink and you miss it kind of um, roast of a often critiqued figure in feminist academia named Camille Peglia, um, who like I have had full like two hour classes in university where we just talked about how like crap her ideas are and um yeah i was just like whoa this is so great like i feel like i had like such insider knowledge um <laughs> which is great because i was already feeling i'm like oh man like she, she's totally roasting this person in this film like subtly yeah um but then you gave me that backstory information yeah. and i was just like oh man that's even more incredible yeah there's this kind of um there's also a a well-liked and prominent feminist, feminist academic who plays um, the woman at the lesbian archives who is roasted, but she's a fictional character. So that academic is in on the joke because mm-hmm. she's playing the character who's being roasted. Yeah. The other one, it seems like it's just an interview with her. And she roasts herself almost. And she roasts herself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was great. I loved that. Mm-hmm. The film itself, um, if you aren't up with feminist academia, which is totally okay because how many of us are, <laughs> um, I, I had I felt a lot of connections between it and Clerks. Yeah. The first Clerks in such a way that I'm like, if somebody who loves Clerks saw this and didn't like it, then they're probably just a jerk. Check yourself yeah probably just like have some uh issues with folks that they don't want to uh, acknowledge because as first feature films clerks and this kind of had a similar aesthetic in in different ways in in very different ways but like i was like they this that would make a great double feature yeah like everything that takes place in the video store feels so clerksy mm-hmm. and it it's so good and again it's both are steeped in the 90s and both of them like the acting feels very i i gathered my friends and we made this movie that i wanted to make yeah so we're not the best actors in the world but it's charming yeah like by the end it anything that i was like this isn't the best acting has lent itself to the brilliance of what the film is as a whole by the end of it so one of the things about this movie um because I liked it so much, I was like, what else has Cheryl Dunier done? And she really hasn't made a significant feature film that has been well-received mm-hmm. since this. But what I did find out 
is that she's directed a lot of episodes of TV that we like. Really? Yeah, I'm going to give you a list of some of the shows she's directed episodes from. Please. She's in Umbre- <laughs> Start again. She's directed episodes for Umbrella Academy. Okay, yeah. For Bridgerton, which we haven't watched, but mm-hmm. prominent. Why the Last Man. Mm. Lovecraft Country. Dear White People. The Shy. The Fosters. I love that show. <laughs> and Queen Sugar, which I haven't seen, but I've heard is is good. So she she is doing a lot of work, but it's um television. She's very uh doing a lot on uh directing episodes of television and um she also has a production company for black artists, which is really great. That's so cool. Um we'll talk a little bit more about that. So she her production company uh yes, she's a production company that she started in 2018, so it's fairly new. Um called Jingle Town Films. Um, and its goal is to, quote, provide a platform for storytellers and filmmakers that are people of color and or queer and to be a space for diverse artists to thrive and have their voices heard. Love that. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really, really wonderful. Um, you shared with me a link to a really wonderful um, interview and kind of look at Cheryl Denny's work um, that Criterion Channel has put out mm-hmm. um, that I think is, you know, really worth watching anytime. But you know, as we're nearing the end of Black History Month, I think Cheryl Denier's this this work is such an impressive debut and it's so bold and it's yeah. so smart and it's so singularly its own. And Cheryl Denier is continuing to do work to use her voice to help elevate other marginalized voices. Um, and I think that you can so clearly see her heart, her intelligence and her like creativity in this clip. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes and I really, it's like less than five minutes. Yeah. So I really encourage people to watch it. And, um, I don't know that watermelon woman is easy to find, but it's, you can seek it out, seek it out. I will definitely be watching it again. I'd like to get a hard copy of it. And, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's really, there's so much I want to say about it. That is more of a deep dive, mm-hmm. a conversation. But what I will say is it manages to be simultaneously a 90s comedy, mm-hmm. a sexy romance, like there is a very sexy scene in this, mm-hmm. um, and a really complex, no easy answers, incredibly intelligent exploration of history, identity, community, and art. Yes. Um, and it asks the question like, what narratives do we have? What narratives have we lost? Um, and how do we, and then while simultaneously being in a meta way, part of creating new narratives. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. Like this is a brilliant film. It's and as I'm it, talking about this, I'm like, I should probably change it to a five out of five. Yeah. <laughs> the, that's the word I keep coming back to is brilliant. Like I, I, I just, we got to the end of the movie and I just felt so in awe of what I just saw and what was achieved by Cheryl Dunyer and everybody involved in this movie. It's incredible. How did it make you feel? It made me feel incredibly charmed by Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Like she is so charming mm-hmm. um, and a total babe, I yeah. might add. Yeah. Um, Still, like in that, oh, yeah. in that Criterion collection. Coolest clip. glasses. Yeah. I'm just like, ugh. It's hip as fuck. Yeah. So charmed by Cheryl, but also really reflective on how narrow our historical narratives are mm-hmm. because of the reality of racism and sexism and what has been documented and what hasn't. 
um, and what we've lost because mm. of that. Um, and I think for uh, just like at times incredibly silly, funny, at times sexy movie to also say something so important is just ridiculously impressive. Yeah. You're so uh, smart. Me? Yeah. You're oh, so thanks. smart. <laughs> um, yeah. It made me feel totally swept up in the genius of Cheryl Dunyer. Uh, I, I'm so glad that she's still getting work and it, it's it's so cool to hear that she has this production company that is lifting these marginalized voices and sharing these stories. It's incredible. And yeah, this is brilliant. I also want the poster. The, the poster's po- great. The poster's so cool. I would happily hang it in the house. So maybe got to hunt that down because it's freaking sick. Okay. Let's uh, get into the last film of the week. This was a really highly anticipated film for me. I was really excited to get into it. So tell us about it, Kylie. We went and saw the 2002 drama Close. Um, it's directed by Lucas Daunt and written by him as well as Angelo Tissine. It stars Eden Dambrin as Leo, Gustave Duval as Remy, and Amelie Dequen as Sophie. And I apologize if my French pronunciation was poor there. Uh, the synopsis, 13-year-olds Leo and Remy have always been incredibly close, but they are but they drift apart after the intimacy of their relationship is questioned by schoolmates. When tragedy strikes, one is forced to confront why he distanced himself from his closest friend. It was hard to find a synopsis that I felt was appropriate. Yeah, I was kind of looking at that too. Well, this one was from Letterboxd. The IMDb ones, I was like, mm, mm. nah. Um, yeah, we, this is one of those films that we've been hearing great things about, um, and it just hasn't been accessible for us to watch, Mm -hmm. um, in a legal way. Uh, and (laughs) then of course, I I just want to take this moment to, to say that like Metro's programming is so phenomenal. The fact Mm -hmm. that we saw the trial, a 1962 Orson Welles film, the watermelon woman, an incredibly difficult to find, but important piece of black lesbian cinema bound and then bound like the Wachowskis, which like, I mean, they're popular. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then this, like this, like quiet Belgian drama. That's very new all in the same week. Just what the heck last Metro. And also shout out to all the audiences this week, except the two people who talked at the trial, Mm -hmm. like bound watermelon women and close. The audiences were phenomenal and everyone except for those two dinguses at the trial were phenomenal. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because I think, you know, we very often highlight the piss audience experiences that we have, but I think it's also important that when we go to the theater as frequently as we did this week to highlight that good audiences still exist in movie theaters and there are people that respect the whole experience of watching a movie in a movie theater. And we really appreciate the majority of the audiences that we had this week. Especially when you're not at Cineplex. Yes. we All of the movies we saw this week were at Metro. So just like such beautiful curation that allowed us to see films we've been wanting to see, but have been difficult to access um, that allowed us to see new and important films um, that brought film store attention that we probably never would have seen otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. God bless you. Yeah, we would never. The trial would probably, if it hadn't come to Metro, likely would never be the first Orson Welles film that we would watch. I may have never heard of it. Yeah. Um. So the fact that it was and, and it's one of my favorite movies. It's I've so ever good. Seen. Yeah. No. It's uh. It's truly yeah. incredible. Yeah. Got to keep supporting your local indie cinema if you have one. 
Um, and if you don't and you want to support ours, you can go to the Metro Cinema's website and you can donate. They're not for profit. They do great work. Mm -hmm. um, we are so thankful for them. So thank you, Metro. Thank you, Metro audiences. Yeah. Um, and thank you, everybody else. Um, let's talk about Close. I'm stalling because it's going to be hard to talk about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we had been anticipating this when we saw that it was coming to Metro. We saw the first showing of it on a Saturday afternoon, which I think was the right time to see it for mm -hmm. us. Um, what did you think of Close? Okay. Um, <laughs> I thought, and this is also a heads up if you're considering seeing it, this was a tough set. It yeah. is very heavy. Deals with some very hard themes. So recommend looking into it a little bit uh, before you go and see it. Yeah, if you're somebody that there are potential... There's content that potentially would be too raw or difficult to see in a public setting or ever. Mm -hmm. um, just look into it a little bit more. We won't get into specifics about what the film is about, but I think I'm more and more struggling with that um, when a film has something really difficult in it and that isn't necessarily obvious from the trailers or from just the promotion of it how can there be a way to make that clear to people? Like I think TV shows, it's getting better because they'll have like that starting, you know how if you watch like Stranger Things, it'll be like flashing lights, talk of death. Like it'll kind of tell you at the top. Yeah, like kind of. Um, Just like a little content warning, both for like yeah, yeah. anything that might um, impact you visually, but also emotionally and personally. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. I think that this is one that, depending on who you are, depending on what you've experienced in life or kind of what you feel, how you feel about anything in life, you might want to look into it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, that said, this is another powerful and beautifully made film from A24 about grief. Yeah. Um, the Getting into specifics, the acting first and foremost is incredible. For me, notably, the characters of Leo and Sophie were some of the most affecting performances I've ever seen. But I think it's important, as you kind of alluded to earlier, it's important to acknowledge, because I'm feeling the same way too, when we watch films that are led and so heavily focused on child actors. Especially when they're dealing with something either emotionally heavy or like... Thematically heavy. Like, <sighs> or anything where like the film itself the character they're playing because this actor is playing them that could then impact them in their real life, the way other people treat them or talk about them. Mm -hmm. How do you, is it even possible to keep a child actor safe in a film like that? Mm -hmm. And, and what's being done to keep them safe on set emotionally and physically, but also when the shooting of the film is done. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's really complicated. Yeah. It, and it's just, you know, we don't always get to know what level of thoughtfulness exists behind the scenes for these people that are acting in the film. And yeah, like you're saying, like what support exists before, during and after mm -hmm. the production. Yeah, puts a lot of those questions in my brain. But again, I mean, that aside, the performances in this are uh, incredible. They're, um, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Most of this movie is um, the character of Leo 
and like close ups on his face. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but the like the actor Eden Dambreen um, had never acted before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I also sometimes have some complicated feelings about this. Like, um, so Ratcatcher would be a similar film like that. Like this idea of mm. you take people who haven't acted, you put them in this one film, and then they never act again. Like, how do people? How do the people who are in the film feel about that? Was it just like? they were interested in doing this one thing and they're okay to then live their lives differently after, or is that, I don't know. It's, it's complicated. Do you know the story of how Lucas Daunt found Eden Dambreen? No. Uh, so Lucas Daunt was sitting on a bus listening to Max Richer in his headphones. Max Richer's the one who does the classical renditions of popular songs. Like where's my mind that was used in the leftovers. Yeah. And he was listening to Max Richer's music and saw Eden Dambreen with his friends ahead of him on the bus. So imagine watching him as if it's a video camera through your eyes while this music is playing. And he was like, that's him. He's got to be Leo. And so he went and talked to him on the bus and said, would you like to audition for my film? And the kid said, yes. <laughs> wow. So, you know, um, but he's phenomenal in it. The movie would not be what it is without that performance. Yeah. Um, so I hope that, he was well taken care of before, during, and after because it's thematically heavy um, and the content of it could be difficult to deal with socially too. Yeah. It was a really painful movie. Yeah. Like I said. Pretty much cried the whole time. Yeah. Like I said, um, and we won't get deeper than this, but it deals a lot with grief and it really emphasizes the stages of grief. Yeah. And I feel like it it's able to do it so effectively because it is being told through, through the perspective of a young person. And uh, again, a, a junior high aged person where all of those emotions and like day to day emotions are already in a heightened state. Mm -hmm. So when you tack something as huge as grief onto that and just how even more complicated it is for a young person to navigate that. Like I remember when I was in grade seven, so I was 12 or 13, um, my, my grandpa died, uh, my grandpa on my dad's side. And I remember just feeling so complicated about how to feel about the whole thing. Like I wasn't particularly close with him, but he was, I was closer with the, my grandparents on my dad's side than on my mom's side. So I I was upset for my grandma for like losing her husband. I was upset that my dad was sad about losing his dad. And I just, but I also, I just remember, I'm just like, I, but I like want to go hang out with my friends mm -hmm. and not deal with this. And when, when you're a young person dealing with grief, I just remember reflecting back on it now. Like I remember feeling so complicated about it mm -hmm. and that you're pulled from happy moments to sad moments to to the entire spectrum in between in between that. So I, I I felt a little bit reflective about that by the end of this film. And this in particular, so you talked about like Bound and the Watermelon Women are kind of like would be wonderful double features that explore different but similar things. Mm-hmm. Close and Welcome to the Dollhouse are kind of like that in that they're both junior high but different time periods and one is a girl and one is a boy. Mm -hmm. um, this film, like The Watermelon Woman, 
is exploring so many complicated things, but not necessarily being incredibly obvious about it. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is about the social acceptability of masculine friendship. Yeah. Um, And that's something I've always been really grateful, like, or something I've always really loved about you is that I'm fairly certain, but correct me if I'm wrong, your whole life you have had, like, quite close, often, like, one friend that you've been very close with and you would touch and you loved each other and you didn't care what anybody else thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. That doesn't necessarily mean that the other person in that friendship felt the same way, right? Like, you've had friendships that people have, like, made fun of you and said that you were a couple. Yeah. And I've asked you about that, like, many times. I've been like, did that bother you? And you're like, no, not really. Yeah, I just didn't really associate with those people then. Like, if you're going to be a doink, like, I don't want to hang out with a doink. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that. Like my friend is more important to me. And, and having that friendship is more important to me than what you are perceiving about my friendship. That's not necessarily how everybody would be. Like, I think that's such a beautiful thing that you've always felt and been able to feel confidently willing to champion. Mm-hmm. But not everybody's able to do that because the social repercussions can be so intense. Yeah. The social pressures can be so intense. Uh, and this film really beautifully and complexly looks at like masculinity, friendship, the element of touch involved within it, like how, like the title close, how close are we allowed to be emotionally and physically to people? Yeah. And I think it's, it's one that it was so painful. I don't know how much I want to rewatch it. And yet I think on a second watch, really exploring that idea of touch, like, like what close means Mm -hmm. would be even more prominent and impactful on a second viewing. But like, I don't know if I could do it. That's just it. I mean, I really loved this movie. Um, But yeah, when we were kind of unpacking it immediately after, we were both kind of like, I don't know if I'd watch it again. Like, I don't know if I need to relive it. Like, it's just such a beautiful one. It it can exist. It's just a really beautiful one-time watch. We talked a lot about how, so this and After Sun are both A24 movies about grief that we cried a lot in. Yeah. And I said it felt really different from After Sun, and I couldn't quite pinpoint why. And then you kind of said some things, and then we kind of started like peeling that apart together. And one of the things that we kind of came up with together was that After Sun's grief becomes the viewer's grief. Mm -hmm. Like the viewer takes that grief on as if it's their own. And, And I think it starts to like swirl with like any grief you've experienced in your own life. Whereas this close very much feels like watching somebody else go through loss and pain and you cannot help them, mm-hmm. which is which is in some ways, at least for me, more difficult and more painful. Shortly before I lost my dad, um, a, a close friend lost her mom. And I remember feeling really helpless, like I can't do anything to make it better. Mm-hmm. And that's what this film feels like, like watching somebody being like, I can't do anything to help you. Yeah. And I want to help you not feel this way. And I can't. Mm-hmm. And like that for me, at least is really hard to watch. And so despite these films both being about grief, even the way I cried in them was very different. Like after Sun, the crying almost feels cathartic. Mm-hmm. Like I'm acknowledging these feelings. I'm allowing these feelings out. Other people are witnessing these feelings. Thank God. But in 
close, it felt like I hurt so much for you. Yeah. And it was just this like constant quiet crying. Whereas in After Sun, I'm like wailing. <laughs> yeah. Like it's this, different. This for me, it, it, it kind of, it affected me in waves. Yeah. Like where I would kind of get hit with this big cry. And then, yeah, like it, it's just, I, it, it's, it felt like I was done crying, but the tears were still rolling out of my eyes. But the end credits hit me especially hard. Similarly in After Sun, where as soon as the credits started rolling, like I got really emotional. Like there was a huge swell and it was, it was almost a heaving cry. And I don't think we were the only ones in the theater feeling that way. No. And I appreciated the delay of the house lights coming up. Yes. <laughs> I was, I was thinking about that. I'm like, is that something that the um, filmmakers make a decision about? Like the house lights are to come on now or is that something that Metro was like, oh, we know it's a painful movie, so we'll wait a little while? Because Cinem I'm like, I don't know what weirdo is able to just stand up immediately when the lights come on and leave the theater during that movie. Well, and Cineplex, like not all the time, but sometimes it's like as soon as the screen goes black, the house lights are at full full dimness. And, and it's just like, oh, my God. So I'm not allowed to sit in my feelings at all. No, bye. <laughs> Um, so I really, I really appreciated that those extra few moments to sit in the dark and let out my cry and then kind of start to compose myself. Yeah. Um, as the credits rolled. Yeah. It, it, I, I, I like your comparison, but I also like that A24 put out two films about grief starring first time child actors in a same What year. jerks. Um, the movie's beautiful. Like it's just, it's a film like, artistically movements a really big part of it and mm -hmm. i don't know i was just really moved by it um someone i follow on letterbox has like a better review than i could ever do so i asked him for permission to share it and he said yes so i'm gonna read it if that's okay yeah. um he said i could use his letterbox name or i could let people know that he's frank from philly uh, so <laughs> this is frank from philly whose letterbox handle is brie be brave morvern his review which was a five out of five said, this film story is a total heartbreaker. Its existence is cause for elation. A young filmmaker has given us a portrait of platonic male intimacy expressed in imaginative play and casual touch. Of course, it slams headfirst into the aggressive teenage rituals of gender conformity, but before it dims, it's pure radiance. Other directors, Zhao, Greengrass, Andrea Arnold among them, have successfully collaborated with non-professionals. Lucas Daunt goes further, centering his highly emotional drama on young Eden Dambrin's face, a remarkable percentage of this movie is him in close-up. It's a revelatory performance from an untrained first-timer, unguarded and generous. Daunt bookends the film with glorious shots of Leo running through a field of his family's flower farm. Shown across seasons, the fields work as a simple symbol of the cycle of time, but literally it posits Leo amid beauty as a kid raised to appreciate form, scent, color, delicacy, and impermanence. It's an eloquent character choice translated into indelible motion. Further listening, in this illuminating interview, Daunt Daunt details his distinctive approach to filmmaking and collaborating with young and experienced actors. Recorded before the Oscar nominations were announced, he notes how many films show men fighting other men, while few show men holding other men. That close will almost certainly lose to a derivative war picture sadly underscores his point. That, is, so that last bit is so incredibly powerful to me yeah. because, I mean, yeah, um, All Quiet on the Western Front is swept the BAFTA awards and is nominated for best picture and will like, yeah, likely win best international film, even though close is nominated 
for the Oscar. And yeah, this just the fact of comparing violence to intimacy, intimacy, and compassion and love. I and, think what, while I may have like recognized those two things separately, I think what like Frank's review, and I know he's pulling from what Daunt himself has said, um, helps me think about those two things in tandem that like, I'm, you know, it's possible I haven't, we haven't seen all quiet on the Western front that we would think it's a well-made movie that we would like it. But what does it mean when we proliferate the social imagination with art that shows men's bodies in relation to each other only when they are violent Mm -hmm. as opposed to proliferating the social imagination with like male touch. And I just, I think it's really important. And um, yeah, it was something that really, I I read this and I found it really moving and how art begets art begets art. Um, that the original title of this movie was We Two Boys Together Clinging, mm. which is based on the title of a David Hockney painting that was um, done in 1961. But that f- phrase, We Two Boys Together Clinging, David Hockney titled his painting that because it's a verse from Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which was published between 18, or written between 1891 and 1892. Mm. And so to see these like 1890... 1960, 2020, this like thread of male artists trying to do something different, queer male artists trying to change the narrative Mm. is really beautiful. Yeah. But also sad that it's still, it's still a minority of the stories being told. Yeah. I mean, bound in the watermelon women make me feel similar ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, this was um, incredibly impactful and heavy and beautiful. <laughs> it sits in your gut. Mm-hmm. Like we saw it last night as of this recording. And Yesterday it, afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's still affecting me, I think. I, I think I'm still sitting in the feels from it. Um, but after kind of, you know, you the listener, after listening to us talk about it and if you are still interested in seeing it, do your, do your kind of due diligence going in to make sure you're uh, appropriately prepared for it. Highly recommend checking this out. It's uh, it's one that's resonated in us and uh, I, I'm happy to support more stories like this coming out. And I do want to point out, I, I don't have a lot to add to the conversation because we haven't seen the film, but Lucas Daunt's first film is about a, um, a uh, ballerina experiencing gender dysmorphia who's trans but is played by a cis actor and a, and there's been a lot of critique of that film from trans folks and activists mm. it's also based on um a story of a of a real person who has then talked about how it's like her experience and she's she feels the film is valid but there's a lot of complicated stuff happening with that film and i hope that i loved this film so much i don't think i will watch his first film yeah um but i hope that he learned from hearing the voices of other people as he moved into making this and as he moves into making his next films because i think he is incredibly talented but i think that it's really important to think about the narratives we're telling and and how we are telling them 
mm-hmm. and whose voices have become a part of them and how they interact with the creator's voice. You know, I just, I feel like it's important to point that out because it's, yeah. a, it's, um, I think there's a lot of people who fairly, if they saw his first film would not see this film because of how they've been hurt from the first film. Yeah. I think that it is really fair and important to point out because we've had a little bit of conversation about that this week. And I feel like it's an ongoing conversation we have about who's telling whose stories and who should and who shouldn't. And and I don't think it's as simple as only if you've had the lived experience should you tell that story. Mm-hmm. I think it is more complicated than that. But um, when people who have had the lived experience are saying, I'm really hurt by this and I feel like there's potential social and political damage that will be done based on this narrative mm-hmm. that you've told and it's not your lived experience, we have to listen to those voices. And that is what is being said about by many people about his first film. Mm-hmm. I think it's his first film. Yeah. And I, I think too, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying about uh, The Last of Us, like the fact that the the showrunners recognize that these aren't lived experiences or these aren't their stories necessarily to tell or to relate to. So they include people And even sometimes when they are bringing in other people's voices, like looking at the Wachowskis with Bound, is really meaningful and important. Yeah, How is that not going to just enhance what you're trying to tell? Exactly. So yeah, I just, I I felt like it was important to acknowledge that, especially um, there may be people listening who have seen the first, uh, his first film and, and have some complicated feelings. And while I really, 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 really liked this movie and think it's phenomenal um i would understand a person who doesn't want to continue with his filmography yeah very thoughtful oh thank you (laughs) try to be yeah no i think i think it's important and i i I feel like that's what i'm grateful for with us as movie watchers uh because i i think i definitely tend more to to this than you do, but I, I can be very like, just take it as it is and ignore anything on the peripheral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've kind of, I, I mean, I still kind of struggle with that and, and it's, it's kind of you that keeps me honest, <laughs> like by, by doing these kind of behind the scenes digs and knowing more just about what's going on behind the scenes and what's going on both culturally and politically around these films that we watch it, uh, it helps educate me and just, you know, not everything is just rock star awesome all the time that there are nuances and important things to acknowledge about these films or the people making them or the messages they're trying to say. And it's not as simple as like bad and good. Yeah. I really liked close. I think it's a really important film. Yeah. Same. How did it make you feel? It made me feel heart achingly sad, <laughs> but in a way that I kind of like my media to make me feel I'm kind of sick. <laughs> Me too. That make you feel devastatingly pained. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was honestly it was it was really painful. Yeah. Like I felt really and then we went and tried to go for pizza after and I was like can the person who's telling us that there's no room at they have no tables for us can they tell that we've just been crying and are they like what's wrong with these people? <laughs> yeah, why are you coming in here all sad like? <laughs> why do you want are you crying cuz there's no tables? I'm cry. Maybe a baby. <laughs> <laughs> just pizza, chill. It's just pizza. Pizza's so everything. On, <laughs> pizza's life. Um, on that note, let's talk about dads. Dads of the week. We're, I mean, that's why we're here. We're looking for better dads. 
But before we get to the good dads, who's your bad dad nominee of the week? <laughs> I don't know how you're going to feel about this. Okay. But mine is the advocate from the trial. <laughs> Orson Welles Yeah, himself. Orson Welles himself, the advocate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the trial is a very allegorical, very symbolic, metaphorical, just throwing those literary terms at you, yep. film. And if we think of the advocate as a representative of authority, mm-hmm. of which parents are, he represents the worst of that. Mm-hmm. In the sense of not a tyrannical, aggressive, but a apathetic. A, um, I'm pretending to do the work and telling you I am and telling you you're crazy for thinking that I'm not and don't worry, it's going to work out and why are you worried about it? Mm. Um, but also I don't care and I'm going to just like go back to bed. but also like don't get mad at me for doing that because I'm working on this can't you tell that I'm working on this so this like miscommunication apathy self-motivation but I'm telling you I'm working for you parents do this shit I do all of this for you I've given up my life for you and if you can't tell that's your fault yeah like and I just thought as a representative of that this like I act like I care. I act like I'm doing the work. I make you feel bad for questioning any of my faults or anything that like I'm doing that's harmful to you. If we think of that in parental terms, that's the most insidious version of a bad parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just think of that scene where he closes and then pulls up the covers as like, the most vibrantly indicative version of that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not good. It's I not don't good. want I don't want to deal with this, so I'm going to bed. But I am working on it. Don't get mad at me. Don't you can't I work so hard. I deserve to go to bed. Yeah. You need to chill. Yeah. Yeah. I, I considered the advocate, but oh, I, nice. I couldn't uh I, I couldn't find an angle that was as eloquent as what you just said. <laughs> and I, I feel like I feel like he is definitely going to be the bad dad because I went with Brandon from Welcome to the Dollhouse. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I get it. But yeah. I think Brandon is incredibly complicated. Yeah, like I, I feel like the things outside of like him just being an asshole and selfish and dangerous. Like, you know, there's a couple of things he says that he's going to do that are some of the most horrific thing I've ever seen in a junior high comedy. Yeah. The biggest kind of sticking point for me that lends itself to bad dad territory is that he often will use vulnerability um, when he has ulterior motives. Like he'll kind of let down his sort of hardened exterior and and what seems like might be kindness to get things that he wants. And then when he doesn't get those things, he's big baby about it and can be a big doink again. Um. And I feel like that's something that toxic parent-child relationships can that can exist within those kinds of relationships. Um, but I think what you've laid out for the advocate is a lot. Uh, a lot. There's a lot more to chew on there in terms of bad dad dynamics. I mean, even think of that name, the advocate. Yeah, I'm here to advocate for you. Yeah, but they're not really. All right, Big Daddy Welly, <laughs> the advocate himself. Don't, Don't be, be our dad. dad. Um, okay, yeah, my my rad dad. It's a little bit it's a little bit weird because it, it gets a little bit meta. 
Okay. But I chose Cheryl Dunye. So did I. Nice. Okay, sick. So it's it's a done deal, but let's talk about why. Because like I was kind of, I mean, Cheryl in the movie is awesome, but I was kind of, I was kind of applying this to the character as well as the real person. Me too. Okay, sweet. Like, I mean, some attributes is that like, I love that she just speaks her truth and she's honest and direct and that she actively seems to seek deeper understanding about things and won't just kind of take surface level information as it is. Um, And she follows what she believes is right. And she, you know, has this strength and intelligence about her that, you know, she's not deterred by what others think or what uh, expectations others, even like close friends of hers put onto her. She's just like, no, I'm going to do me. (laughs) It's, I don't know why you're thinking that way. Every one of her talking heads was like my favorite thing ever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I mean, the Cheryl Dunye, the person is just, I mean, I'm going back to the word of the day. It's just brilliant. Um, And her approach to this film and her approach to the work that she does is clearly coming from a place of, thoughtfulness and brilliance and i i love all of those qualities in 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 a dad who wouldn't want somebody as reflective and thoughtful and awesome as shardanya is their dad and funny too very funny um i don't have much more to add because you said what i was going to say and you said it very well and 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 thoughtfully but on the meta side of it i just have to imagine that there are so many films that exist that wouldn't otherwise exist or so much art that exists that wouldn't otherwise exist because Cheryl Dunye made the watermelon woman. Mm. And if that's not an example of rad dadness, I don't know what is. Hell yeah. So. That makes me so happy. I'm so glad we're on the same Yeah. Page. It's amazing. All right. Cheryl Dunye. Be, be our dad. dad. Oh, you've got a look. You got daddy. I got a daddy look. You got a daddy look. Who's the daddy? You know who it is. Is it Anthony Perkins? Of course Can it we is. double daddy him? He's already been a daddy. I don't give a shit. He is. He's ultimate daddy. I mean, there was a, there was like a lot of good pickings for daddy of the week. I mean, Cheryl Dunye also could be daddy. Also, so could Corky. And so could Ryan Gosling. Oh my goodness. Should we just daddy everyone? I don't want to make that many graphics. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, the, daddy light, daddy light for um Cheryl, Sebastian. Oh and no. Corky. We can do. We can we can do a double daddy for Cheryl and Joseph, but everybody else just can exist in but Cheryl's already rad dad of the week. Okay. So we'll Corky, have, though. Okay, let's double daddy. <laughs> wow. Really having to but basically ev- there's a daddy in every film this week except for close. That's true. Man, what daddy licious week. Yeah. Also Pedro Pascal ultimate daddy. Just have to put that out there. He's everyone's daddy. Okay. Great. So just for clarification. <laughs> so we got Cheryl Dunye's rad dad. We got Anthony Perkins as Joseph in the trial. And we got Gina Gershon as Quirky. From put Bound. a little put a little flame on the rad dad for Cheryl too. So Joseph K and Corky. Okay, before we dip, we got a rad rack. Kylie. Smell me with it. <laughs> Shut up. Oh, my goodness. I don't want meat and potatoes to be replaced with smell me with it. Tried it out. One of these days. One of these days, I'm just going to love something you say. I like the DVD stuff last week. <laughs> Stick with okay. it. Rad Rack, Rad Rack. Um, I'm very fond of the Wachowskis. Mm-hmm. 
In retrospect, I don't think Cloud Atlas was great, but I really <laughs> like V for Vendetta. I really like The Matrix. All I, the newest one and the first one, especially Bound, was great. But I don't know how many people are familiar with the show Work in Progress. Not enough. Not enough. It actually is one of my favorite shows I've seen in the last handful of years. A Showtime show. It was on for two seasons before it got canceled because big thumbs down to Showtime. Um, unless you want to sponsor our podcast, in which case, <laughs> big thumbs up. Um, work in Progress is a show. <laughs> that will help get Work in Progress back on the air. Yeah, we will. Work in Progress is a show created and show run by Abby McKennany, and she's also the star of it. Um, but it was ri- written and executive produced by Lily Wachowski. And it really feels like it was a passion project for Lily um, because she was not a part of making um, the newest Matrix movie. I think she was quite involved with work in progress. It is one of the best shows I've seen in its exploration of mental health. Um, I personally thought it did the best job of exploring the pandemic. The second season, um, which came out after COVID became a reality, um, works that into the plot in a very genuine and important way. Unlike I think what was going on with like, this is us or even glass onion, you know, like it's, really incredible and then also work in progress as queer television um i think is is uh really meaningful i really 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 like it um also had uh the character of chris is uh mostly in season one played by theo germain but one of my like absolute biggest crushes they are very So I highly recommend it's on Crave in Canada. Let you check out Work in Progress. Two seasons, not very many episodes, really important um, queer television and um, exploration of mental health. And Lily Wachowski, it's a big part of it. Want to see how the uh, she started with Bound and she's the work she's still doing now for for queer storytelling. Really great, lovely. That's it. Love the wreck. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we drop a new episode every Thursday. Uh, till then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That is going to do it for these little crybabies this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.